Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Tortoise. There's an idea that I want to use to introduce this week's podcast. It's a frame, really, for understanding how the weird and the unthinkable or the truly radical can slowly become accepted and mainstream, how public perception can just shift over time. It's called the Overton window, and it's a term that's been used a lot in politics recently. And it was invented by a man called Joseph P. Overton in the 1990s. He came up with a list, a series of policies on a theme with extremes at each end and a slider that would catch a different, what he called, windows of political possibility on that list. And the slider would start with what was palatable to society at that time, but you could move it more and more to the extreme if the political and social landscape was acceptable. And I think that that idea of how our perception of things changes over time and the role that celebrities might play in that shift is at the heart of this week's story, a remarkable tale about a woman who had a baby. But if only it were that simple. I'm handing over to my colleague, Patricia Clark. It's August 2022, and summer in Spain has officially begun. Or at least, that's what Ola has declared. It's the second most read magazine in the country, and its summer edition always has the same cover star, a celebrity called Ana Obregón. <laughs> this year, she's standing in the shallow end of her pool on the island of Mallorca, wearing a white bathing suit. And she definitely hasn't dunked her head in the water. Not a single hair is out of place. Ana is 68 this year, not that you would know it. And she's got a knowing smile on her face. She's done this before. I grew up in Spain, and even when I was a child, it was a running joke that her annual Ola cover marked the start of the holiday season. But she isn't just famous for her poolside shoots. In Spain, Ana Obregón is a household name. She was an 80s ick girl, and after a brief stint in America, she returned to Spain in the 90s to become a sitcom star and TV host. But the real source of Ana Obregón's fame are the tabloids. For decades, she's been a regular fixture in the Prensa Rosa, Spain's thriving gossip press. They've catalogued Ana's relationships and sometimes affairs with Spanish singers, international sportsmen and aristocrats. 
her affair with King Juan Carlos's nephew, was covered in the pages of Hola, as was the birth of their only son, Alice. When Alice was diagnosed with cancer in 2018, the tabloids reported on that too. And when he died two years later, Anna's grief made front covers. But none of the stories about Ana Bregón have rocked the Spanish public quite like the one that broke this year. In March 2023, she appeared on the cover of Hola again. But this time, something was different. She was sitting in a wheelchair on the steps of a hospital, a tag still on her wrist, sunglasses concealing her face. And in her arms, a newborn baby. It looked like a maternity shoot. Exclusive, the headline read. Ana Obregón, mother to a child born by a surrogate in Miami. Then the 68-year-old shared the cover image with her one million Instagram followers. And all hell broke loose. Ana Obregón, the original influencer, was at the center of a media storm. That's when the great questioning of Ana Obregón began. Suddenly, she became the most criticized. Well, we could even say the most hated figure, according to a large part of the Spanish population. Politicians, press and the public were furious. They said Ana was just too old to have a baby as a single mother. And they were especially concerned that she had used a Miami surrogate to carry the child, because surrogacy is illegal in Spain. It's not even a grey area. It's illegal. It's forbidden. This year is an election year, and so Spanish politicians latched onto Ana's story. The left-wing equality minister said that what she had done amounted to violence against women, and that surrogacy is just a euphemism for womb rental. And the right-wing parties, they were torn. Was Ana acting within her rights, or was she going against traditional family values as a much older single mother? A week later, another exclusive dropped in Ola. Yes, the newborn child is her legal daughter, but it's her biological granddaughter. The child was conceived using her son's sperm and a donor egg after Alice's death from cancer. I believe that she's still holding on to that grief, and in order to alleviate it, the unbearable pain of having lost her son, she's undertaken this whole adventure. In this episode of the Slow Newscast, I'm investigating the curious case of Ana Obregón. When I started working on this story, I thought I was going to tell you a wild tabloid tale, the story of what happens when an aging, wealthy megastar, grieving her only son, can bypass her country's laws and end up with a brand new baby. But the more time I've spent on this story and the more people I've spoken to, I realise that it's much bigger than that. It doesn't just make for good tabloid fodder, and actually, it extends far beyond the surrogacy debate. Anna's story takes us to the new frontiers of fertility, where technology will challenge our ideas of family, motherhood, and the law. We're going to have to ask ourselves, at what age are we comfortable for a woman to be a mother? Then, inevitably, at what age are we comfortable for a man to be a father? And, of course this story raises questions about the rules of consent in creating a child. What I found in this investigation is that there largely aren't rules, or they're variously interpreted. If the Roe v. Wade debate has forced a lot of people to ask themselves 
Who decides who can end a pregnancy and when? There's a big argument coming about who chooses to begin a pregnancy. In other words, I found myself asking, who decides who gets to be born? Ana Obregón is so well-known in Spain that she has a national nickname, Anita la Fantástica. It's meant tenderly, fantastic Ana. She's larger than life. But it also has a second meaning, Ana the Fantasist. Because scandal seems to follow Ana Obregón wherever she goes. She's always been seen as a bit frivolous, a bit tabloidy. But that all changed when Ana's son Alice got cancer in 2018, at just 25 years old. Spain has known Alice pretty much since he was walking, so Anna and Alice are both much-loved personalities. Given that Anna already has that exposure, she decides to go public, to tell the story of his fight against cancer and how hard it is. This is Álvaro Rey, a journalist at Vanitatis, one of Spain's leading lifestyle publishers. Ana Obregón had been a regular fixture in gossip columns for decades by the time Álvaro started reporting, and he's been following her life closely for years. He tells me that, after receiving treatment in New York, Alice initially went into remission. People really start sympathizing with her when Alice initially recovers from cancer. It is practically a national celebration. It's a party. Here in Spain, it is taken as a great victory. But then Alice's cancer came back, aggressively, and he died shortly after, when he was 27. When Alice died, it was in the middle of the pandemic, so we were all watching a lot of television. So, really, his death was announced live on TV. And I would almost say there was a national mourning. No one had a bad word to say about him. And there were some overwhelming scenes, things that I still remember seeing live on television. Even I cried. The nation rallied around Anna. That year, she hosted the National Countdown to Midnight on New Year's Eve, another one of her annual traditions. I remember watching it on TV with my family. Anna was fragile and teary. She was unsure if she'd be able to make it through the broadcast. At one point, she blew a kiss towards the sky for Alice. 7.3 million people tuned in. Three years later, she still insisted on always wearing white because for her, white was the colour of mourning. Black or white, she never wore colour. Luz Sánchez Mellado is a reporter and columnist at El País, Spain's second biggest newspaper. She was the last journalist to speak to Ana Obregón before the now infamous Hola exclusive. It was an interview about her new memoir, which the press were told would be about Alice's cancer journey. She told me she only left the house to work. She told me she was looking forward to going home to lock herself away, to finish writing the book that was on the verge of publication. It seemed to me that she was sick with grief. She really had this unresolved grief and I totally believed her and really empathised with her. Because I'm a mother and I cannot imagine the pain of losing a child. It is true that three years later it starts to turn into a kind of pathological grief. Luz and Anna spoke just two weeks before the Ola cover hit newsstands. By that time, Anna would have known that she had a grandchild on the way. The process of finding a surrogate and a donor egg would have likely taken months, if not years, of careful preparation and planning. But Luz says Anna didn't mention a thing. Instead, she talked repeatedly about her ongoing struggles with depression. 
So when Luth Sanchez Mellado saw that picture of Anna in a wheelchair outside the Miami hospital, cradling a newborn baby, she couldn't believe her eyes. I saw the photo and I was just in a trance. I was in shock because 15 days earlier I'd done an interview with her. I'd been with her for a whole day and I saw a depressed woman. She told me that the best moment of her day was when she went to sleep because only then could she disconnect from life. Álvaro Rey told me that Ana was planning to reveal the news about her granddaughter to coincide with the release of her memoir, the one that Luth was interviewing her about. But a local tabloid called Semana got there first. They published a headline late at night, just before the tabloids were going to press, saying that Ana Bregón was a new mother at 68. The following morning, Ola got hold of those photos of Ana in a wheelchair outside the hospital and splashed them on its front cover. That's why the picture doesn't look like her usual glossy, posed covers. It wasn't. It's quite an extraordinary thing if you think about it. Untouchable Anna, who is normally always in control of the narrative, was essentially outed by the tabloids. But the news is out. Anna shared the post on her own Instagram. The caption she wrote underneath would come to shape the public's view of her. We've been caught. A light full of love has arrived in my darkness. Now, I won't ever be alone again. Then she added, in all caps, I've come back to life. And so the world was officially introduced to baby Ana Sandra, who, for now, was simply Ana's new daughter. The backlash was swift. There was a lot of furore over the language Ana used in her Instagram post. I've come back to life. It sounded selfish, like she hadn't thought at all about the child's best interests. And of course, she was old. Too old, some felt, to have a child. When Anna's 80, Anna Sandra will be just 12. Could she really give her the care she needs? That seemed selfish too. But Luz wasn't just shocked about that. She just couldn't believe what Anna had done. She took a plane, she went to Miami to pick up pick up like someone picking up a shipment. It was a bit like someone collecting a package that they'd commissioned from a surrogate. All forms of surrogacy are banned in Spain. And actually, in legal terms, the practice is categorised as an act of violence against women. It's not even a grey area. It's illegal. It's forbidden. Surrogacy is illegal in most of Western Europe too. But the UK allows what's known as altruistic surrogacy. This is a complex area of law, but it means a woman can carry a child for someone else so long as she isn't paid a fee. In some US states and parts of Eastern Europe, both commercial and altruistic surrogacy are legal, and it's big business. There are many reasons why people choose to take advantage of it, from couples struggling with infertility to single parents. And for some people, like gay men, it's the only way to have biological children. More and more U.S. celebrities are choosing to have children in this way. Whoever's carrying my baby, like, what if they weren't a fan of me or my yeah. husband? And what if they didn't want to be carrying our baby? Oh, I wanted to give yeah. them our, that choice. Kim Kardashian and Kanye West, Khloe Kardashian, Sarah Jessica Parker, Paris Hilton, Perez Hilton, Elon Musk. The list goes on. But none of that has meant surrogacy is becoming more accepted across the Atlantic. El País, the newspaper where Luth works, won't even use the word surrogacy. They call it womb rental. 
I believe that surrogacy is a euphemism. It doesn't capture what it really is, which is to rent the womb of a woman as part of an economic transaction in order to satisfy a desire. It's not a right. But not all Spaniards take such a firm anti-surrogacy stance. Thousands of them have accessed these services themselves. In 2010, Spain introduced a law allowing so-called intended parents to register surrogate children born abroad as Spanish citizens. Officially, there were 3,500 of these children registered between then and 2022. But some experts estimate that number could be even higher, about 1,000 surrogate babies every year. For many hopeful parents on a budget, India was once a popular destination. There, the whole process could cost you about 20,000 US dollars. That was until 2016. There's been a storm of controversy over the Indian government's move to restrict child surrogacy. It says it considers it a rent-a-womb industry that exploits impoverished young women. This left a gap which, until last year, was filled by Ukraine, where costs were roughly double those in India. Now that Ukraine is inaccessible because of the war, families are turning to places like Georgia. For Anna Bregon, who's estimated to be worth $33 million, the US was the simplest option. There, treatments cost upwards of $120,000. Because money wasn't the hurdle. In Anna's case, it was the peculiarity of what she was trying to do. The debate, in this case, far exceeds the rights or wrongs of surrogacy. We hadn't quite recovered from the initial shock when, two weeks later, Anna gives an interview to Ola magazine and says that this girl is her daughter from a legal point of view, but that she is her biological granddaughter because she's used the sperm of her son, Alice, who died three years ago. Something you have to get your head around. To be clear, the sperm is her son's, and the biological mother is a donor. So Anna is both mother and grandmother at the same time. The press had to invent a new word for it. Madre abuela. Mother, grandmother. This subject has it all. It captures all the ethical, social and political debates. Luth is right. And the moral and legal questions at the heart of Anna's case will only become more relevant because rapid advances in biotechnology mean the ways we think about families are fundamentally changing. First-time mothers are, on average, getting older across the EU, the UK and the US. And Spanish mothers are actually the oldest of all, at 31. Spain also has the largest population of first-time mothers over 50, mostly because people become financially independent from their parents later than the rest of Europe. More and more LGBT plus couples and single people are becoming parents too. All of this was unthinkable a few years ago. And many of these people, straight or queer, single or partnered, are turning to technologies like IVF. And just in the months since I started working on this story, there have been huge leaps in these assisted reproductive technologies. There was this. A group of scientists from the US and UK teaming up to create what is being called the world's first synthetic human embryos made without eggs or sperm. Then this. Now the first baby created from three genetic parents has been born in the UK. The breakthrough is aimed at stopping a mother passing on defective genes to a child. And then, scientists in Japan created a mouse with two biological fathers after generating eggs from male cells. It's an advancement affectionately known as the gaby. With all of these advancements, the possibilities of having children outside the traditional nuclear family are about to go into overdrive. Soon, they could make what Anna did look like small fry. 
we can see an Abregón as a test case. How should we respond, legally, ethically, to the boom in these reproductive technologies? I wanted to understand the hoops that she had to jump through in order to have, make, create Ana Sandra. I turned to Ana's memoir. I read it cover to cover. Ana details her son's cancer journey in sometimes excruciating detail, and her language is raw and vivid. It's a real outpouring of grief. She says in the introduction that it's written with red ink, tinged with blood. But amid the darkness in her book, Ana finds a glimmer of hope, the birth of Ana Sandra. The way she tells it, having a child was her son Alice's dying wish. And the decision to have Ana Sandra was one that mother and son made together while he was alive. She hints at it throughout the book, calling it their secret pact. But she doesn't make the big reveal until the final page. After Alice died, Ana says she was standing with one leg over the hospital balcony, ready to jump. But she stopped herself when she remembered her promise to her son. And so, in the next paragraph, without any further detail, Ana Oregon introduces herself as the Madre Abuela, Mother Grandmother, to a brand new baby. And that's it. The book ends. It's a very tidy account. But surrogacy isn't a quick or tidy process. You know, I've been called for this particular type of treatments. Oh, I'm the pimp. Uh, because, uh, you know, pimps work with prostitutes and they rent their vaginas and their bodies. And I, the pimp, that uh, I'm uh, having surrogates render wombs and bodies for nine months. This is Dr. Fernando Ackerman, medical director of the Fertility Center of Miami. He's a slim, middle-aged man with a thin moustache, and he dials into our Zoom call wearing his medical scrubs. Like sex work in some places, surrogacy is a trade. In some U.S. states, it's an industry. Dr. Ackerman is at the heart of it. And I had assumed he might be wary of the press. But he was surprisingly open about the complexity and nuance of the process. There are several different issues. One is the age by itself. Anna did undergo the surrogacy process in Miami. But Dr. Ackerman says, coyly, that he was not her doctor. But I wanted to know what he would have done, step by step, if the grieving 68-year-old Anna Bregon walked into his office, proposing to have a child using her dead son's sperm. He explained that, in Florida, there are no legal guardrails around who can become a parent using surrogacy. Only guidance from the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. It's up to each individual clinic to decide. And he was emphatic. For him, Anna's age wouldn't rule her out. I understand that it's questionable and you can talk about the life expectancy and how you could be doing this type of treatment. You are not protecting the child and those type of criticism. But, uh, you know, I think that the age by itself cannot be a factor. Dr. Ackerman was keen to stress that 68 isn't what it used to be. He says, these days, Anna could have 30 years left. She's in good health and immensely wealthy. And I guess I'm interested in, like, she's 68. Would it be a factor if she were 80? Would it be a factor if she were 90? Like, where, where's, where do you draw the line? I don't know. Uh, because uh, there were some unwritten rules in the past that uh, in infertility, when a couple together has more than 100 years, 
meaning let's say a couple that is 51 and 49, that's okay for them to have a kid and to do any type of infertility treatment. But when the sum of both of their ages is more than 100, you shouldn't be doing the treatment. So that has been changing because, uh, you know, they say that 60 is the new 40 and the life expectancy is being pushed and pushed each time more, but the reproductive age is not changing. There's no US data on the age of so-called intended parents, but the doctors we've spoken to suggest that they're older than the average first-time parent. In fact, Dr. Ackerman said he's worked with clients older than Anna. The couple that, as far as I remember, was the oldest. She's in the early 60s and, and the male is around 80. I think that personally, at that age, if I were the patient, I wouldn't want to have a kid. But I, I put myself in their shoes and I accept and I did the treatment. Of course, it's not just the fact that Anna is 68. She's a woman, and a single one at that. Men can have biological children at whatever age they want. Just while we were in the process of recording this podcast, both Al Pacino and Robert De Niro had children at 83 and 79, respectively. And sure, some people are uncomfortable with that, but there just isn't the same horror as there was when Anna announced her news. You think of it differently for mothers and fathers. And that's because, if we're honest with ourselves, there's an assumption that mothers are the ones responsible for the care of the children, for their emotional and physical well-being. And there's an expectation that, if a man dies after having a child at 80, he leaves behind an often much younger woman who can look after the child. It's one of the first things people say when you talk to them about this story. Who will care for the child when Anna's not able to? Because, on paper, it looks like Anna has done this entirely alone. We recommend and the attorneys involved are making this a rule that you cannot break, that there should be someone designated as a tutor in case that something happened to the single parent or to both the parents, okay? Regardless of how likely or not if for them to have something happening, regardless of her age. What's trickier than Anna's age, he says, is the fact that Alice wasn't alive to consent to this process. In Anna Sobregon's case, the other particular issue is that the legal aspect of this type of treatment, the sperm may have been frozen uh, because their oncologist team recommend him to do it, but maybe in the consent, the consent that was signed was only to freeze the sperm, but was not signed what to do the, with the sperm in case that he dies. And uh, the consent should be very specific, saying that in this case, the custodian for that sample will be Anna Obregón, and she will have the right to use that sperm as she pleases to do it. And if we cannot comply with the legal aspect, we will reject that patient. Alice froze his sperm in New York while he was receiving cancer treatment. And his mother then had the sperm transferred to Miami for the surrogacy process. Anna says her son signed a consent form, giving her permission to use it after his death. I spoke with several US lawyers who said it's highly likely that this sort of consent form would have been a routine part of the sperm freezing process. But the Spanish tabloids have questioned that narrative, as have other sources I've spoken to. 
They say Alice froze his sperm only to have a baby with a future partner, should he survive the cancer treatment. Although his girlfriend at the time of his death has refused to speak on the matter. That's Alice's father, Alessandro Lecchio. As well as being Anna's ex-lover and an aristocrat, he's a regular pundit on Spanish gossip TV. He's refused to say outright whether he was involved in the surrogacy process, and he refused to speak to me for this podcast. But Alessandro has, on occasion, implied that he wasn't directly involved in decisions about the birth of Ana Sandra. Ana herself has also told the press that he refuses to meet his granddaughter. But this talk of consent is academic, really. Ana doesn't need her ex-partner's permission to use their son's sperm. I spoke to lawyers working in this area and was surprised to find that Alice himself didn't even necessarily need to sign a will. The law is surprisingly permissive when it comes to this issue, both in Florida and abroad. In the UK, a 2022 High Court judgment allowed a man to use an embryo created by IVF with his wife after her death, even though she didn't provide written consent. I also spoke to several US lawyers and doctors who told us Anna was not without precedent. They told me of other cases in which people have had their dead children's children, their dead partner's children, even in one case of a couple who intended to have their dead friend's children. I have done over 8,000 surrogate cases, and I've probably done, I don't know, 15 or 20 cases where the gentleman's sperm has passed away. Dr. Ackerman hasn't performed any posthumous procedures himself, but Dr. David Smotrich of La Jolla IVF Clinic in California has. He's handled several. Uh, patients who have come who are going to war to serve their country, and several of them have come and said, listen, I'm going to a very dangerous place. I want to free sperm for the opportunity that my wife can have a child with me if, God forbid, I uh, pass. He tells me about others, like a couple who had four children, all of whom died of cancer in early adulthood because of a rare genetic trait. One of the children who died donated his sperm before his death. And, after genetically modifying the embryo to remove the rare cancer trait, Dr. Smotrich helped the parents have grandchildren using that sperm. We were able to work with a genetics lab, and they now are blessed with twins because of this technology. Dr. Smotrich says he's only carried out procedures where the person who died clearly consented to the use and extraction of their gametes. But again, this was entirely up to him and his team. The legal frameworks in this area are being forged in real time, case by case. Marla Neufeld, a Florida lawyer who specialises in fertility, told me about one of the more controversial legal precedents that was set in the burgeoning field of posthumous reproduction. Uh, One of the big cases in New York was a cadet from West Point who was injured in in a skiing accident and basically was on his deathbed. And the courts basically looked to what intent did he have to want to retrieve his sperm so his parents uh, and I believe his fiance could obtain the sperm and use it to create a child. And in that case, they really just relied upon word of mouth of what he told his parents, you know, that he wanted to one day have a child. And they also looked to him being an organ donor, which was kind of the most analogous um, intent that was available, even though he didn't expressly say, you know, freeze my sperm if I'm going to die and have a child. They kind of took a broad interpretation of those two things and allowed them to retrieve the sperm. But it hasn't been reported, at least from what I'm aware of, whether the second prong has been utilized, whether he's, they've been able to use that sperm. 
In this case, the dead person didn't even have to consent to his sperm being extracted. In other words, you could become the biological parent to a baby after you die, without ever choosing to have your sperm or eggs frozen. In Israel, that much is enshrined in law. Male soldiers in the Israeli Defence Forces can have their sperm extracted up to 72 hours after they die. It's a question of consent, but also of intent. And if you don't need either to create a child, more questions will inevitably open up. It seems to me that the science of fertility is changing at breakneck speed and the law is playing catch-up. All Anabregon had to do was find someone who was willing and able to carry out her procedure at a hefty price. And she was off. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Whenever I tell people about this story, their jaw drops. But the more you speak to people in the US fertility industry, the less crazy it all seems. No one we spoke to in Miami or California was really that shocked by the details of Anna's case. In fact, many people applauded her decision to become a mother-grandmother again so late in life. I spoke to Jeanette Edwards, Professor Emeritus of Social Anthropology at the University of Manchester. She specialises in fertility tech, and I asked her if it was possible to recast Anna as a feminist pioneer. The thing about the Anna case is you definitely could celebrate the fact that this woman has made a decision and a choice, and she is able to fulfil that choice and that decision. You could say that she has all the resources and wherewithal to be able to do that, both financially and with a kind of a sense of privilege that she's got the the legal advice, the medical advice, the money to be able to do what she chooses. And of course, choice for women has always been a central plank of feminism. Professor Edwards has spent decades tracking cases a bit like Anna's. She studies the way advances in reproductive technologies transform the way we think about families. And they are quite amazing and they give people possibilities that were never there before. They give single women possibilities. They give people in couples who are infertile for whatever reason. 
um, those possibilities they give gay men possibilities to have a family so it opens up a massively important and significant possibilities for a wide range of people but she says the new frontiers in assisted reproductive technologies don't liberate everyone equally there's always been those inequalities we've always had women some women from some parts of the world who look after the babies of women in other parts of the world that stratification has always been there in some ways you could see surrogacy transnational surrogacy particularly as another way of actually firming it up and solidifying it a spanish tabloid managed to track down anna surrogate she's a cuban woman quote living in a humble apartment in hollywood florida And so, while advancements in reproductive technology have undoubtedly helped thousands of people, this doesn't mean we've escaped the familiar class and power dynamics. These technologies, we know that they present possibilities that are completely new and were unthought of. But at the same time, they have the potential of firming up existing norms and existing structures. It seems to me that Anna is doing both things at once. She's pushing back against what's expected of her as a single woman of 68. She's taking advantage of an established market and new technology to create a new kind of family. And she's brought a much-wanted and much-loved child into the world. But I want to know her side of the story, beyond the pages of her carefully curated memoir. So after trying her press teams in Spain and Miami, I decide to head to Madrid, to her book launch, where she'll be taking questions from journalists. I'm anticipating a spiky interview, considering all of the critical press coverage about Anna. But the atmosphere isn't at all what I expected it would be. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Anna walks in to whoops and cheers. To my surprise, many of the journalists are telling her how beautiful she looks. One of them even hands her a bouquet of flowers as she walks on stage. Anna is no longer wearing black and white, her colours of mourning. Instead, She's in a billowing, flowery, pink and blue dress and sky-high heels. And it hits me. This is Anna Obregón, the woman I watched every night on the TV when she was a sitcom star. The tabloid queen. Of course this is all a bit theatrical. She takes a seat and as she turns to face the crowd, there's a tear rolling down her cheek. Anna is sitting in front of a huge black-and-white picture of Alice, her son. She tells the crowd that she's emotional. After a presentation about the book, they open up the floor to questions, with the caveat that they have to be about the memoir. The questions start off a little fluffy. How did she find the strength to write the book? What inspired her? But after about 10 minutes, one journalist asks her if she's aware of the international debate that she's kicked off. Anna started to say that she wasn't aware of any criticism, but she stopped mid-sentence. She said a giant wasp had flown into the room. Another Anita La Fantastica interpretation of what was actually a fly. But the journalist wasn't deterred, and he pushed back. (laughs) Had she really not seen the discussions taking place in Spanish Parliament? Anna turned back to him and smiled gently. When you bury your only son, she said, any criticisms you receive feel like cosquillas. 
Cosquillas means tickles. It's a strange expression in Spanish too. I think she means it all washes over her. Her daughter, Ana Sandra, is a miracle, she says, batting away more questions about her and the surrogacy process. She tells the journalist to talk about the book instead. Finally, I managed to ask Ana a question. Hola, Ana. Patricia Clark, soy de Torches Media, somos un medio británico. What do you say to people who say you've jumped over Spanish law and who say, and I'm using their words, that you've bought a baby? There was a gasp in the room when I asked it. But I get the same stock answer. So that's it. Cosquillas. After nearly two hours, Anna had nothing to say. The more I think about it, the more I realise I was never going to get what I wanted from Anna. Not there. A press conference for the memoir of a tabloid star full of fawning journalists isn't the right place to have a nuanced discussion about the future of fertility. I'm not even sure I asked her the right question, so perhaps I shouldn't be surprised that she didn't answer. And that's the thing with this story. For any of us, the lawyers, the doctors, the parents, the public... Are we really asking the right questions? It's kind of interesting to think about the relationship between what is possible in biotechnological terms and what is possible in social terms. What is possible in terms of how you can really reproduce a family? What are the limits? What's technologically possible and what's socially possible, and I would add what's legally possible, are all different things. When you're as wealthy as Ana Bregón, what's technologically possible is at your fingertips. That much is obvious. You have the power to bend what's legally possible too, by travelling somewhere where you can access whatever you want, all above board. But what's socially possible, that's where celebrities have real power. Dr David Smotrich, the man who says he's performed more than 8,000 surrogacies, told me he was also one of the first doctors to facilitate a surrogacy for a gay male couple. In 97, I had other IVF doctors sending my name to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine asking for me to have my medical license removed, that I would dare do a case like that. Now, I think it's pretty common that virtually every practice, certainly in California, and if not in the entire United States, would be happy to take care of same-sex couples if they're interested to have a child. He argued that Anna Bregón's story feels the same to him, a case where society is slow to catch up. But that will likely change, he said, because of what she's done. Let's remember that this story began on the cover of Hola magazine. El hola, es, um... hola represents who we want to be, not who we are. Appearing in Hola is sort of, it's very aspirational. But it's true that Ola has been smart enough to adapt its front covers to the pace of society. So Ola has actually changed the discourse, and it's changed what's socially acceptable, at least for wealthy people. So for now, Anna is back in control of the narrative. And to her, this might all be another chapter in the long tabloid life of Anita La Fantastica. A month from now, her next photo shoot will no doubt appear on the cover of Ola, and summer will be upon us. We'll see Anna at 68, looking immaculate in a colourful bikini, with her daughter in hand, la madre abuela.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. For the premium Tortoise listening experience curated by our journalists, download the free Tortoise audio app. Or if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the Tortoise Plus channel for early and ad-free access. This story was written and reported by me, Patricia Clark, and co-written and produced by Rebecca Moore. The sound design was by Hannah Varrell, and the editor was Basha Cummings. Tortoise. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation, and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.